from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. Given the wide-ranging events of 2021, including the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, the inauguration of a new president, and a new party assuming control of both chambers of Congress, Brian Donovan knew it would be a new world for advocacy and credit unions. The good news, says Donovan, CUNA's chief advocacy officer, is that the CUNA League advocacy team was well-positioned to succeed in 2021, paving the way for a successful 2022. There's a lot to be proud of up and down our advocacy agenda, Donovan says. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA News. In this episode of the CUNA News Podcast, recorded shortly before the holidays, Donovan revisits some advocacy wins from 2021 and highlights top CUNA League advocacy priorities. He also shares how strategies may shift in 2022 and what he's looking forward to most about the 2022 CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference. How do you feel about your advocacy efforts in 2021? 2021 has been really a remarkable year when you think about how it started with the stuff that happened at the Capitol on January 6th, the inauguration of a new president. You had Democrats take control of both chambers of Congress. Really, from the beginning, we knew that it was going to be a new world for advocacy and, and of course, a, a new world for credit unions. And the good news is that we were really well positioned to succeed in 2021, and, and I think we have. We're at a place right now where we're, we are doing a little bit of a look back in terms of things that we've accomplished, things that went well, things that could have gone better. I think we've got a pretty good list. Most recently has been the work we've done on the IRS reporting issue. The prospect of having to get a provision like that IRS reporting provision out of a major spending bill was daunting. When we first looked at this over the summer as an issue, when we started hearing about it from credit unions, we knew it was going to be tough because what we were up against was this provision, which would have required credit unions, banks, other depositories to report the amount that goes into and out of an account of all their members if more than $600 flowed through it in a year. What that provision was designed to do was to help the IRS in tax enforcement. And so it was meant to pay for about a quarter of what began as a $3 trillion spending bill. The Democrats in Congress really want to pay for this bill. And so advocating against a big chunk of how they were going to pay for it, we knew it was going to be tough. We knew we would have to make it politically uncomfortable. And that's what we did with credit unions, leagues, credit union members all coming together, more than 800,000 sending messages to Congress as it is going to the floor Uh, It doesn't have the provision in it. We're not quite out of the woods yet, but we have a lot of confidence that we're going to be okay at the end of the day. That in and of itself would be a successful year, but there were so many other things that I think went right for us this year. Sticking on the tax theme, the thought that Congress would consider a $3 trillion spending bill on top of a one and a quarter trillion dollar spending bill on top of everything that was spent on COVID 
and there isn't a whisper of changing credit union tax status, I think that's pretty remarkable. We had a huge win in the Supreme Court in April on the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. We had Community Reinvestment Act legislation introduced in Congress that specifically exempts credit unions. We were able to get two hearings on a bill that would allow credit unions to do more to serve underserved areas. So, you know, up and down the list of our advocacy agenda, we find that there are successes, a lot to be proud of. So you asked me how I feel about advocacy in 2021. Clearly, I feel pretty good. Were there any surprises? Two or three surprises. The first was the IRS issue in and of itself was a little bit of a surprise. I can honestly say that at the beginning of the year, that proposal, it hadn't been put on paper, but it wasn't on our radar screen. You know, another surprise has been the reaction by NCUA to some of the implications of COVID and the impacts that COVID has had on credit unions. And, you know, one example of this is, and and probably the key example, credit unions, a lot of credit unions have seen their capital levels go down because of the government stimulus that's been put into the accounts of of credit union members and, and others. And what that has exposed is the fact that NCUA doesn't have all the tools that it needs in order to help credit unions through what we expect will be a temporary situation. We have encouraged the agency to go to Congress and ask for tools that would allow them to forbear prompt corrective action for otherwise healthy credit unions that have had their capital levels degraded because of government stimulus. And, you know, unfortunately, they haven't responded as quickly as we would like on this. We continue to talk to them about it. But, you know, that's something that surprised me. If I'm I'm a regulator, I want to make sure that I have all the tools that I need to fulfill the mission of keeping credit unions safe and sound. And this is one area where we would hope that they would do more. So, you know, those are a couple of examples that just come to mind in terms of things that might have surprised me this year. How might your approach to advocacy shift in 2022? We're in the process right now of putting together our advocacy agenda for 2022. And over the next several weeks, we'll be talking with the leagues and with the CUNA board about what that'll look like. And when we put that together, what that really is, it's uh, marrying what credit unions tell us they need out of the public policy sector with the realities of the political environment. And throughout the year, We've heard some things a little differently from credit unions than we've heard in the past. You know, in the past, what they've told us is they want us to focus on expanding credit union powers, reducing regulatory burden, enhancing information security, and preserving the credit union tax statuses. And throughout the year this year, what we heard from credit unions and what we saw start to play out in the public policy sector was more on preserving credit unions' role as financial intermediary. And what is happening is that there are fintech companies that are coming into the space and and trying to take market share from credit unions and from small banks and, and in some cases from large banks, but they're really trying to disintermediate the financial system. And so as we think about 2022, We're going to be looking for ways to 
protect credit unions' role as a financial intermediary as Congress, as state legislatures, regulators deal with fintech, try to prevent sort of a regulatory arbitrage uh, in the fintech space as, as they look to figure out what role cryptocurrency is going to play going forward. And you know we want to make sure that credit unions are able to uh, participate in that market with their members. That's one side on the policy side, you know, how I see things changing. And then, of course, when you think about the political realities, I think we all have to recognize that 2022 is not just an election year, but it's a very special election year in that it is an election year that will take place after redistricting. So new congressional lines are being drawn. Some cases, this is going to put members of Congress, even maybe perhaps some credit union friends, against other members of Congress. We're going to see, and we've already seen, a significant number of retirements. So there'll be a lot of open seats that will be subject to election. The election year is going to start a lot sooner. In some ways, it may have already started in terms of Congress slowing down its activity. But certainly after the first of the year, I don't think many people expect Congress to do much more than what is absolutely essential to keep the government running. What that means for us is that we need to measure our expectations in terms of what we hope we can accomplish in a proactive agenda. It also means we shouldn't let our guard down in terms of uh, guarding against things that we may not like to see happen, because those things can still happen, particularly on the regulatory side. You've been focusing a lot on financial well-being for all and advancing communities in your messaging. How have legislators responded to that? We've had a really positive response to that, and it's been bipartisan. And I think it's a reflection of the fact that financial well-being for all, the work the credit unions do to improve their members' financial well-being and advance the communities that they serve, is really the 21st century way of articulating the credit union mission. In the law, The mission is to promote thrift and provide access to credit for provident purposes. That's what financial well-being and improving a member's financial well-being is all about. Being there for the communities is what it's all about. So there is a positive reaction from policymakers when we talk about it, when we look at issues through that lens. And I would say that the best example that I could give of that positive reaction is the underserved areas bill that we're working on. This bill would allow all federally chartered credit unions to serve underserved areas. It would also exempt business loans that are made in underserved areas from the member business lending cap. It uh, expands the definition of what an underserved area is from simply a new market tax credit area or a CDFI area to also include any area or any location that is more than 10 miles from the branch of a depository institution. So really trying to get at making sure credit unions can serve the rural banking deserts that exist across the country. And we've had positive reaction from both sides of the aisle on this legislation in ways that we haven't seen in the past. The reaction from Democrats who control Congress today is to put it forward in two congressional hearings that set us up really nicely to try to move it through the Financial Services Committee in the House and 
try to ripen it so that it could be included on a must-pass piece of legislation perhaps next year. For Republicans, what they like about it is that it gives them something to point to when they're engaged in a discussion on postal banking, right? We have a lot of concerns about postal banking too. So if the credit union underserved bill can be a free market alternative to postal banking, that attracts Republican support to the legislation and helps us in the long term. And so it's great for us to sort of wrap our advocacy around this concept of financial well-being for all and to talk about how credit unions are improving their members' financial well-being. But when we look at issues through that lens, what we have found is we're able to advance them in ways that we haven't in the past. We're getting there. I mean, we still have, you know, the, the banks don't like this bill at all. And so there's still hurdles to it. We're moving slowly, but there's a deliberate strategy that we're following. And um, so far, so good. What are the prospects for charter enhancements in 2022? This underserved bill would be part of that. We've got a couple of other bills that we've been working on. One is uh, the Credit Union Governance Modernization Act. It makes it easier for federal credit unions to expel disruptive members. That just moved through the House Financial Services Committee recently. We've got legislation to increase the maturity limit of federal credit union loans as well that's been introduced. What we're going to try to do now through the end of the Congress is get these bills as far as we can. Uh, If we can get some into law, that's great. The best way for us to get them into law in an environment where Congress isn't doing much is to take them through the processes far as we can on their own. Hopefully we ripen them and then we can attach them to must pass legislation. And when I talk about the ripening process, what we want to make sure that we do is we create the conditions where if you think of it as sort of a fruit, it can grow and be as healthy as possible. Okay. So it starts with having the right sponsors for the legislation, taking it through the committee process, getting a good vote. Like yesterday we had, um, the governance bill go through the Financial Services Committee on a voice vote. That's about as strong a message as you can get that this bill is not controversial and can go through. And so doing all of those things, every positive movement forward increases our chance of the bill riding along on something a little bit bigger. So at the end of 2022, what will success look like from an advocacy perspective? I would like to see some of the charter enhancements advanced a little bit, at least get some of the bills a little bit further through the process, if not into law. That sets us up really nicely for the next Congress. It gives us sort of a running head start. The first year of the Biden administration from a regulatory perspective has been, I think, slower than we anticipated in that there haven't been a lot of new rules proposed or issued that are... um, necessarily detrimental to credit unions. That isn't to say that there haven't been any, but the extent to which we're able to keep that pace relatively slow, I think would also be a success for us in 2022. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is focusing more on overdraft protection. Do you expect that to continue? I mean, I think that's one of our bigger threats to credit unions and how they're able to be there for their members is that We're the original consumer financial protectors, right? We're member-owned. There's a lot that is a result of our business model that suggests that consumers are 
most protected when they do their banking or their credit union with a credit union. And it becomes more complicated when you have uh, bureaucrats in Washington constantly changing the rules. And overdraft is you know, something that is a service that credit union members have to opt into, that credit unions try to provide fairly. Well, when you add rules to it, you make it more complicated and more difficult to provide. And so certainly that is a specific concern that we have, but really it's thematic of our broader concern of changes with consumer protection regulation. When the CFPB was created, we were told it wouldn't have any impact on credit unions. That wasn't going to be the case because anytime a rule is changed, it impacts the credit union. And when credit unions are called on to spend more money to comply with rules coming out of Washington, it means that they're providing less resources to their members. So, you know, I think it's one of the bigger threats. We have a new CFPB director that's just taken office in the last few weeks. As he gets his feet under him at the Bureau, I would expect a more robust rulemaking agenda. There's a small business data collection rule that's pending. Certainly overdraft will be on the agenda Overdraft litigation is a big threat. In fact, all sorts of class action litigation are a threat because what they attempt to do there is set policy through the courts as opposed to the regulators or Congress. I think another big threat that we're on on guard for in 2022 comes from the NCUA, and it has to do with Chairman Harper's desire to raise the normal operating level of the share insurance fund significantly higher than Congress thinks that it ought to be. Congress has said pretty clearly it ought to be at 1.3% of insured shares. I think that Chairman Harper has indicated he wants to get the authority to to take it much, much higher than that. And again, I mean, that's literally taking money out of uh, credit union members' pockets. We think it's misguided, it's unnecessary, and we'll be uh, fully engaged on that. How have you seen bank attacks evolve over the past several months, and how might they change in the future? I think that the good news is that I haven't seen the bank strategy evolve much. As best as I can tell, their strategy is to throw spaghetti at the wall and see what sticks. It's the same playbook. I always say if I will be concerned about our tax status at the federal level, if the banks ever take a new page out of their playbook, right? They seem to reflexively oppose every charter enhancement, every charter normalization bill that we put forward, seeming to want us to operate like it's 1934, when the banking industry doesn't look anything like it did in 1934, doesn't look anything like it did 10 years ago. So there's natural evolution that needs to take place with any sort of charter, like a banking charter or a credit union charter. And this notion that credit unions ought to be subject to tax because they have powers that are appropriate for the 21st century is odd. It's also odd that they keep pushing that perspective when it hasn't gotten them anywhere over the last 80 years. So, you know, if there is sort of a change, I think it still is consistent with this notion that they throw spaghetti at the wall because what they're doing and what they've done over the last several years, knowing that Congress isn't listening to them, is they've tried to take their message to the state legislatures where the dynamics are a little bit different. In a number of ways, I think the biggest difference is that in the states, many states are subject to balanced budget constitutional requirements, or they have balanced budget laws. So 
when they go through a period of unexpected spending, like we've gone through, you know, in the COVID times, they're going to be looking for ways to raise money. That's less of a bank attack as much as it is the banks taking advantage of an opportunity. They don't have a new play. They haven't had a new play in a really long time. If you put talking points that they produced in the 1930s and the 1940s next to the talking points they're espousing today, the language changes because we use different language today, but the fundamentals are the same. And so what we're going to do to respond to that, though, is continue to be on advocacy offense. It's kind of fun to have a debate about these things and talk about how they're short-sighted or you know they are misleading and things of that nature, but it doesn't serve us to go tit for tat there. What serves us and why we succeed is because credit unions are out there knocking it out of the park for their members. And when we tell the story of what credits are doing, then what policymakers understand is that the investment that they make in credit unions through the tax status is one of the best investments they make on behalf of their constituents throughout all of government. And so we're in a good place because we're fulfilling our mission. We're improving our members' financial well-being. We're advancing the communities we serve. That's the essence of the tax status. And I think we're going to be fine. How might your advocacy continue to change during the pandemic? The concern that I have relates to access to the Hill. The pandemic closed the Capitol. The pandemic today is not what is keeping the Capitol closed. There are some significant security concerns following January 6th that I think are the key driver in why it is extraordinarily difficult to get into the Capitol or the Capitol office buildings. I think that's going to start opening up as we get into 2022. But what you have to know about working with Capitol Hill is that if you know one congressional office, you know exactly one congressional office. And prior to the pandemic, all the offices operated very similarly in that they accepted meetings from constituents. They were excited to see them. They welcomed them into the office. They put 20 people in a room that's designed for three It was a very open and welcoming environment. And I think you will see that in some cases in 2022 and beyond, but there will be congressional offices that will prefer to do things virtually. There will be congressional offices that ask that the number of individuals that come into the office be very small. They might want to meet somewhere off the Capitol campus. So those types of things are certainly going to change and they're going to affect how we do advocacy in the short term and and perhaps in the long term as well. The CUNA GAC is coming up soon. What are you looking forward to most about the conference? GAC, in a lot of respects, was the last normal thing we did before the pandemic started. So what I'm hoping for is that it will be one of the first normal things we do in the post-pandemic environment. I was reflecting on this with some colleagues earlier this year, you know, The Spanish flu pandemic happened around 100 years ago, and the 1920s are referred to as the Roaring Twenties. It's easy to understand why that's the case today. And, uh, you know, I don't want to say 2022 is uh, shaping up to be a party, but I do think that there's a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of uh, pent-up energy. When I think about what that might mean for GAC is I, I just get really excited about it. I want to see folks. I want to catch up with people that I've only seen on a computer screen for the last two years. I think that's what I look forward to the most. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on? 
I would underscore the work that we're doing on fintech, regulatory arbitrage, and cryptocurrency. I, you know, those are both developing issues that we've dedicated a number of resources to to make sure that credit unions have a place in these policies and that they can continue to serve their members, right? Meet meet their member demands. So there isn't a specific bill or a regulation. There are many, many places where this pops up. It pops up in state legislatures. It pops up at various regulatory agencies, certainly in Congress. And we're doing a lot of work to make sure that our concerns and interests are represented in those conversations. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio.